Hey, Joel. What's up, Tim? The movie we watched today was made to look like a local TV news broadcast covering a nuclear bomb event in Charleston, South Carolina, including spots for television commercial breaks. Yeah. I wonder what kind of commercials were playing during this TV broadcast. Like, can you imagine the anchor saying things like, we're about to reach the two-minute mark of the terrorist deadline, but uh, we'll come right back after this commercial break. Meow Mix brand cat food with more salmon flavor. The only cat food that tastes so good, cats ask for it by name. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. As always, you can listen to the show wherever you normally listen to podcasts. I'm talking iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Play, Google Play Music, whatever you've got. You can also check out our website, www.supercriticalpodcast.com, for a full list of episodes and the occasional bonus feature or two. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security issues for a living. And I'm joined today by my stalwart co-host, Joel. This is Joel. I know nothing about nuclear weapons, but I probably watched an unhealthy amount of cable news, which makes me eminently qualified to be on this <laughs> podcast with you today, Tim. Thank you. Great. Well, thanks for being here, Joel. How has uh, how's your week been? Uh, it's been a long week. How's it going? Yeah, you know, it's been pretty good. You know, I've been thinking about, you know, the spring, maybe playing some... Uh, Joel, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but can I have your attention? Oh. I have been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. I need you to stop what you are doing and listen. Okay. Today we watched the 1983 TV movie with a fake news broadcast of nuclear terrorism called Special Bulletin. Directed by Edward Zwick in 1983. Edward Zwick, you may know from The Last Samurai, Courage Under Fire, Glory, Legends of the Fall, The Siege, Blood Diamond, and the Jack Reacher movies. He is quite the portfolio. But back in the day, in 1983, he was doing TV movies for NBC. This was a Saturday night at the movies, kind of like the War of the World situation. It was made to sound like a real broadcast, a situation in Charleston, South Carolina, where terrorists slash activists, depending on how you look at it, have a, a homemade nuclear bomb in the harbor demanding the United States government give up some of its triggers for its bombs in Charleston, South Carolina, or else they're going to detonate their own. There's quite a number of people in this cast. Uh, you have Ed Flanders, who won an Emmy on the uh, dark comedy hospital drama St. Elsewhere. He plays a, the TV news anchor for RBS News, John Woodley. Uh, based a little bit on Frank Reynolds, who's not the guy from Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but he was an ABC news anchor who was famous for covering the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. Very famous, if you go look on YouTube, where he's like yelling at his producer for information. Uh, Catherine Walker? Uh, is the actress that plays Susan Miles, he, the co-lead anchor at RBS station. We have Christopher Ellaport, who uh, plays a on-the-ground reporter, Stephen Levitt, uh, who gets held hostage by this terrorist group. little thing with him is he did a screen test for Han Solo. Uh, Joel, did he end up getting that role? Uh, I don't think he did. Yeah, I think, I think someone else got it. Yeah. Yeah, someone else. Uh, I can't remember who, though. David Clennon, uh, who is, in real life is a real-life activist and actor. He, uh, you may know him from a playing character named Palmer from the John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, he plays Dr. Bruce Lyman, who is a bomb designer slash 
strategic weapons planner slash activist uh, who leads this uh, gang of terrorists slash activists on this tugboat with a nuclear bomb. And then uh, rounding out the cast, we have uh, David Rashi, who we may know from uh, Veep. He's the Speaker of the House. He plays David McKeeson who's a weapon scientist uh, said to be brilliant. You also have Lane Smith uh, playing a role in this movie, who you may know as the evil coach in the Mighty Ducks movies, uh, as well as the district attorney in My Cousin Vinny. He plays someone named Morton Sanders, a uh, RBS reporter who works on the Hill beat uh, in Congress and is pretty excited about the fact that he keeps getting all of these uh, leaks reported to him. And another nuclear showing for Michael Madsen, one of his first two roles in television movies uh, was this one and War Games. So this guy really owes his career. Michael Madsen from Kill Bill and Reservoir Dog uh, gets his starts from this nuclear stuff. Um, if, uh, maybe he should play one now that he's near the end of his career. Well, yeah, so Joel and I recommended this movie on our very first episode of the podcast. If you can believe it, we're already in season two. We've been doing this podcast since, I think, January of 2016. We've had about 20 or so episodes, and it only took us that long to finally cover Special Bulletin. It won four primetime Emmys, Outstanding Drama Special, Outstanding Writing, <laughs> Outstanding Videotape Editing, tells you the time and place when this movie was released and it was nominated for two more critic leonard malton called special bulletin quote way above average which sounds like a, a backhanded <laughs> yeah, insult it's like, but it's you are supposed to be horrible but <laughs> you're actually okay his normal ratings for his tv guide is below average average and above average so to be a way above average that's not too bad. And 1983 was a big year for TV movies about nuclear weapons. The most mainstream and popular we still need to cover on this podcast is called The Day After, which is about a small town in Kansas responding to a nuclear attack. There's also a movie called Testament, which is about a housewife who tries to keep the family intact after a nuclear war, and a movie called Return of the Man from Uncle which is the spy movie. So four TV movies, 1983. Although, can I just say, I feel like the made-for-TV movie has kind of disappeared in the popular culture. I feel like there's so many movies that people are just quick to play, like, theatrical releases. Well, now, than... now it's all VOD. Right, that's true. Video that's on true. demand. Yeah, it's a, or the Netflix original movie. Yeah, no one just does the straight TV movies anymore. It's unfortunate. One of our listeners to the podcast, AJ, sent us a question on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. He asked if there were any sort of unintended consequences akin to when Orwell performed the War of the Worlds over live radio broadcast. Thanks very much for asking that question. And the answer is yes. So the network, NBC, that put on Special Bulletin tried their best to avoid the world, the world situation where uh, it was a radio broadcast drama and it was made to sound like a an actual invasion from Mars. And people called the radio station and the police and, and freaked out about it because they thought it was real. They tried to avoid that. At the start of the show, they had a disclaimer that would appear at the beginning of the program and it said... The following program is a realistic depiction of fictional events. None of what you are about to see is actually happening. Filmmakers were required to include these on-screen disclaimers at the beginning and the end of every commercial break to assure that viewers that this was not real, that there was even a running banner the first time it was shown on the bottom that kept saying fictional, not real. Of course, as people are, there were still complaints and a call of panic to the network from viewers who thought it was real. NBC-owned televisions serving New York, Los Angeles, Angeles, Chicago, Cleveland, and San Francisco received 2,181 calls about the movie in 1983, and even more calls, 1,256 the following year when it was shown in 1984 again. 
People were upset about the movie's content, but a good portion of them thought that this was a real attack. A spokesperson for WAMQ-TV in Chicago said the station received 100 calls from people that thought it was real. And here's one example. I saw a news article that was written in 1984 and a quote from someone named uh, Deborah Hoog, who was a 25-year-old college student from Chicago, who said, I thought the whole thing was happening. The terrorists, the hostages, the nuclear bomb, everything. I still can't believe it was a movie. It was really frightening. Another person called the Coast Guard in Charleston, offering to help negotiate with the terrorists. See, that was the one I fixated on because I was thinking, well, you know, if someone calling in randomly to say, like, oh, I'll I'll help negotiate. Okay, I guess that's probably not too surprising that they were convinced that it was real. uh, NBC almost pulled the movie after the executives saw it for the first time and freaked out about how effective the movie was. That's when they added all the disclaimers. They pulled all the usual news updates that would normally take place with real anchors during the commercial breaks to avoid further confusion to the viewers. And uh, the director who of this movie, uh, Edward Zwick, had a great retort to these reactions. He said that the <laughs> disclaimers were ludicrous overkill that would mitigate some of the impact of what they were trying to tell with this story. And he even thought that NBC's news department responded the way they did because they didn't like the way that their peers were being portrayed in the film. So let's actually get to what actually takes place on the film itself. As usual, spoiler warning, this came out in 1983 and it was a TV movie that was only shown twice on on actual television, but you can get it on YouTube, the full thing. You want to not be spoiled, uh, maybe go and watch it and then come back here. But let's go through the plot here, Joel. Uh, You usually have the great honors of getting us started here. Yeah, so the movie starts with a fictional depiction of, you know, a TV network saying, oh, here's what's coming up. And they kind of give a a teaser for basically a a, a daytime drama type show with some like cheesy graphics and dramatic music uh, before cutting. And the, the network is RBS Network News cutting to a special bulletin, a breaking news alert as we probably... You gotta love it. To some type of situation that they're bringing to you with uh, kind of real-time information and it's interesting that they don't cut immediately to the live news they have collected a certain amount of information up to that point so they can kind of start to assimilate the listener into the context of the the story a little bit but essentially the news anchor welcomes the audience says we're updating you on some key developments and basically they have Interestingly enough, video of an altercation that happens in Charleston at a a port where a shootout has allegedly occurred between the Coast Guard and certain unnamed individuals on this boat called the Liberty May, a tugboat. The newscaster is there. He's shooting some unrelated video footage, and then all of a sudden a shootout breaks out. What we find over the course of the next few minutes as we go, and again, this is all playing out in generally in real time as the newscasters are starting to collect information, looking at the video footage of the shootout, trying to figure out who's there, that the group that was firing on these Coast Guard officials is a anti-nuclear group, and they have essentially taken hostages on the tugboat, and they are demanding that the federal government, the U.S. government, essentially give over or surrender certain computerized detonating equipment. Each component is on each nuclear warhead mm-hmm. that uh, basically allows the nuclear warheads to be you know, detonated where, whenever they're fired off. They, they want 968 of them. They're yeah. very particular. They're very specific. By 4.30 the next day. Right. 
And then, you know, as an audience that's not very into nuclear issues, and, and like me, I was wondering, wait, why are you focusing on Charleston? The group, who conveniently enough has taken hostage to news people, one is the news broadcaster and then also his cameraman. So they're on the tugboat and they've uh, demanded a live feed to be broadcast nationwide. They basically talk about how Charleston is this kind of big hub for the, the military designing uh, nuclear submarines having mm-hmm. pretty serious contingents of military operations that are related to the, the U.S.'s nuclear portfolio. Well, I, I think it's interesting to talk a little bit about why Charleston was chosen as the location for this movie. Because, you know, Joel and I, used, you and I spent a lot of time in Charleston. We used to work on a campaign. We went down there all the time. I'm, I'm wearing my Charleston t-shirt. I have a famous Charleston bridge that we got lost on several times trying to get down there for, for some events. I have that up, a picture on my wall. And I was wondering, why was Charleston chosen for this movie? Because today, it's not really known as a place for a lot of nuclear weapon storage or operations. But in 1983, it was. In 1981, a report by the think tank, the Center for Defense Information, identified the Naval Air Station in Charleston as one of eight naval bases used by the nuclear weapon carrying ships and submarines and one of seven main storage depots for nuclear weapons in the United States. In 1985, South Carolina had the most number of nuclear weapons on its soil of any state, just under 2,000 in Charleston alone. It's crazy to think about today because we don't even have close to like 6,000 total warheads today. That's including things that are meant to be dismantled in storage and actively deployed. So 2,000 of them in Charleston, you know, in the 80s, we had a lot more of these things. That's a pretty significant number. Now, do, do we know that today, but was that kept under wraps at the time? Or was that a pretty transparent fact about Charleston? So these numbers are drawn from the nuclear notebook, which is something that Hans Christensen and Stan Norris have put together. These are two brilliant investigators that basically use open source information. They don't have clearances, but they're very good at, there's telltale signals about where a place is storing nuclear weapons and nuclear material. You can get a sense of it. During the Obama administration, I think it was twice as part of a transparency effort under the New START arms control agreement with Russia, we announced the number of operational deployed weapons that we have in our arsenal. It was one of the first times that was done, but they didn't talk about where they all are. That's kind of kept as an open secret, but these researchers, and a couple every couple of years, they, they put this out through the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist, uh, which is a, a, a journal. They're the ones that keep the doomsday clock that tells you how close we are to midnight when the, the world's going to end. Uh, it's also a place that I published a couple articles on pop culture and nuclear weapons, one about Game of Thrones and one about Star Wars. That's just gratuitous plugs for my own research. Uh, but but this nuclear notebook uh, has a, a regular series in, in 92, in 85, in a couple years. Uh, I think they had the last one, might have been 2015. It's a, a feature called Where the Nukes Are, and they actually reported on, on where they are in the, in the country. Because it used to be a lot more locations than it is today. Part of the reason why the number in 1992 was still at 2,300 warheads was because they were retiring the Poseidon submarine platform. And a lot of those warheads from those missiles were stored at the base there as they were being retired and then dismantled. But since 1992, there were a lot of efforts to consolidate the number of locations so that there'd be a lot fewer available. This is largely also because the number of nuclear missions in terms of the Navy, the Air Force, the type of weapon platforms has dramatically decreased. We no longer have, we don't do anti-submarine warfare with nuclear weapons. We don't have Tomahawk missiles tipped with nuclear warheads on surface ships. Between 1992 and 1997, South Carolina and nine other states 
were removed from the list of nuclear weapon states with a lowercase s. So they no longer have them anymore. Uh, which is kind of why we would think when we went down to Charleston 2006, 2007, that's why there weren't any bombs there anymore. Today, there are two main nuclear ballistic submarine bases uh, in the United States. We know where they are. It's in Kings Bay, Georgia, and Bangor, Washington. And the Navy has largely gotten out of having nuclear weapons on its ships, except for the B-61 bomb, which can be deployed and loaded onto uh, aircraft carriers, which strike aircraft. Other than that, they don't do they don't do much more. Uh, but another thing about South Carolina and Charleston in particular that's kind of funny in the in this age of constant news coverage on the internet and people being able to make up their own stories is in the George W. Bush administration and the Obama administration there were two separate conspiracy theories that said that the president of the United States was about to launch a false flag operation to launch a nuclear bomb and detonate it in Charleston and they would use that as coverage to get more power for the government and take away more liberties. It didn't happen. Some of the conspiracy people said, well, it was because the news coverage and because we announced it, they weren't able to follow through with their plans. But nonetheless, Charleston seems to be a fixture of nuclear conversations even after the bombs have left. And I bet some of that conspiracy theory comes from Special Bulletin and the impact that it's had on people. Well, yeah, I was curious why both of those, I mean, I assume it was kind of the same conspiracy theory and they just updated it for the administration, but I was curious why they would have picked Charleston as the false flag designated target. That's my guess why. It seems like some of the best conspiracy theories have a little bit of truth. We used to have bombs there and they're detonated in a movie. Maybe it was the guy who offered to negotiate. He was like, <laughs> wait, that was fake? No, I bet they're really targeting that. Blah, blah, blah. That, that could be it. Uh, but Joel, let's keep it going. We have Keep this... asking questions, Tim. <laughs> we have this group on the tugboat. I don't think the movie is trying to force us one way or the other about whether or not we should call this group a terrorist group, as the anchors do, or anti-nuclear activists. I think the movie goes back and forth on this. I think you could make a judgment if you're willing to detonate a nuclear bomb. You probably are a terrorist because that's a terrorist demand and trying to put fear into people. But from their perspective, they're trying to end the world's uh, stockpiles of nuclear weapons. They're trying to kickstart disarmament by getting people to realize that this is something that can happen. And if the U.S. unilaterally dismantles some of its weapons, then maybe the Russians will follow suit. I don't know if that plan has entirely been thought through, but at least that's how that is. Joe, let's let's walk through this group a little bit here. The uh, the movie has like little biographical segments on each person. Yeah, well, it, it was funny. There actually is a moment where you have a Ron Burgundy question mark in the teleprompter situation where, to your point about the classification, uh, the Susan Miles character, she, she literally goes, uh, I guess... They would be a terrorist group. <laughs> and then she kind of continues on talking about them as if she doesn't know what to, to call them. I think it'd be a pretty quick conclusion on, on their label today if there's any kind of related uh, attack. But in a what I would consider a pretty not creative but a, a very efficient way to use a newscast and also provide a lot of character motivation and, mm -hmm. and build up. They do these little snippets, you know, when they're catching the audience up to say, you know, just to recap, we've had shots fired and they've done some research on the people that they've been able to identify. It seems as though the group is being led by a Dr. Bruce Lyman, who's the essentially the lead hostage guy who's giving the most orders to everyone, including the uh, news hostage 
folks with the camera. Uh, it looks like they, they've been able to find, and they're you know doing these quick cuts to these various interviews that, that they have been able to uncover seemingly mm-hmm. in the course of a few hours, which is pretty impressive journalism. That he's a <laughs> lineman as a former strategic weapons planner for the Pentagon, so not exactly a tinfoil hat guy. Yep. Uh, they, they, also, they also found his like high school yearbook. Right, right. So they figured out he was a former Marine, voted most likely to succeed, <laughs> uh, who, before he joined the Pentagon, he worked for a mysterious group called the Severn Group that had connections to the National Security Agency. Yeah, I, tr- I tried to look this up. I couldn't find any sort of like where that name came from. Or So this is actually something that I would love our listeners to, to try to figure this out because it, it seems like it said it's somewhat connected to the NSA. It might just be generic uh, think tanks promoting nuclear weapons because there's another character later on that's like a talking head that says, oh, we shouldn't give in to the terrorist demands. And that's from that group. I was just wondering if Severn was an actual word. I need to look that up. <laughs> I, you know, when you go every time you try to search for it, it keeps coming up. Do you mean sovereign? Right. And it's like, no, I mean, I mean that very vague group, and it's referenced only once or twice in a 1983 TV movie. Obviously, Google. Keep asking questions. That's all I'm saying. Okay, so he worked at Severn Group. He was a nuclear weapons planner for the Pentagon, and they actually uncover video of him testifying before Congress. In favor of the neutron bomb. The neutron bomb. And then then they note that uh, at a certain point, for whatever reason, he becomes disillusioned with his work. And then he begins to associate with the anti-nuclear weapons movement. Uh, It cuts to some very... Uh, efficient video of him breaking into a nuclear power plant. Fictional Sand Island nuclear plant. Right. And then they kind of drop this human blood into some of the uh, components or equipment. Hmm. Uh, and then they have a other footage of him basically being arrested and some small riots and police getting hurt. So you quickly show his entire you yeah. know, arc of uh, character development in about, I don't know, 90 seconds. One thing I think would be kind of fun to talk about here very quickly is um, in July 2012, uh, a group of activists, including an 82-year-old nun, broke into the Y-12 complex that holds highly enriched uranium at Oak Ridge National Laboratory out in Tennessee as part of a protest. They were able to get cut through the several layers of fencing, and they spray-painted various peace slogans and protest lingo on the HEU storage building which caused a huge uproar in the, throughout the defense establishment about the, like, the state of security. The laboratories have tried to install and put in new procedures to stop this from happening again. Uh, but even though they talk about it in the movie, and it's still something that keeps happening uh, later on, even in 2012. So that's Lyman, who's apparently the leader of the group. Then we have what we come to, come to find out is Dr. Dave McKeeson. And they're all very like well-dressed brainiacs. You know, they got their glasses and everything mm-hmm. and nice collared shirts and everything like they just came from work. Uh, McKeeson, he's a little more erratic, more a little, a little more emotionally chaotic a little bit uh, over the course of the, the movie. We find out he's the one who actually builds the bomb that they say they have on board that they're threatening to detonate. I love how they have the, oh, he was said to be brilliant among his peers. <laughs> it's like the, yeah. such a backhanded compliment. We're not saying he's brilliant, but people have said that he's brilliant. I've right. heard word from various people that I trust that he is brilliant. Well, I just loved it where it's like in a good story, you would show the things where the audience can conclude that they're brilliant. And mm-hmm. so this is, they just want to like cut to the chase back. Oh, oh, by the way, he's brilliant. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, well, he developed, according to this newspaper headline, jam-proof targeting system. 
it's pretty it's, impressive. It's pretty good. Yeah. Apparently, he was fired from a, a nuclear weapons program for protesting a missile system. Mm-hmm. Then they have a video of one of his former colleagues saying, oh, it must have just gotten to him if you're able to uh, design equipment that's going to wipe out 10 million people in the blink of an eye. Uh, you got to be. You have to be sure that God is on your side, and it looks like it, uh, it got to him eventually. Yeah, he worked at the uh, Hanford, Washington nuclear facility. And then there are three other characters that play more minor roles, but we thought it'd be interesting just to highlight them and kind of what their addition is to the group. Uh, there's Frida Barton, who I love how they they lead with the fact that she's a poet. <laughs> That she basically is, you know, this is the 80s, so apparently she's a well-known radical involved in campus groups. Apparently she's a, a communist who has been implicated in a prior bombing in New York City. There's another character, Jim Seaver, where they at first don't really know what his background is, but you later find out through a subsequent report that Seaver was a bank robber who served some time in jail along with Lyman when Lyman was uh, serving a short prison term for his uh, anti-nuclear efforts. At Attica. In Attica, yep. And then uh, third, there's Diane Silverman, who I I actually kind of felt bad for throughout the movie because it wasn't – unlike the others, you never really understood what she was doing there. I mean I think I have some – my own conclusions. I'll see what you think, Tim. Apparently she was – mild-mannered housewife, a former student, we learn, of Lyman. They actually have video of the husband who saying, I have no idea what's going mm-hmm. on. Unfortunately, you don't really hear any real discussion from her about why she's doing it. There's one moment where she's like, I guess, giving Lyman a massage, like just rubbing his shoulders when it's a particularly tense moment. So I think there's an implication. Mm-hmm. Maybe there was a romantic involvement, but her husband at one point categorically denies it. So yeah, I don't think I agree with that, but we, we can talk about that a little later in the movie discussion part. Yep. So anyways, that that's the group, the five of them. I don't think they ever actually have a name or anything like that. I was assuming that they would have some kind of banner or something at some point mm-hmm. or, or come up with a brand, but that's the group. Once they're all on board and they're giving their comments, you know, there's this discussion about, is this a serious group? It seems like a ragtag mm-hmm. group. Is this just a hoax that they claim they have a nuclear bomb? Right. But then people start to think, well, these are serious folks who have serious knowledge and experience dealing with these weapons. Maybe they could actually do it. And at one point, they discover that one of the Coast Guard security guard folks that they initially shot has actually died, which kind of kicks up the drama where it's not just some protest. They're pretty serious with machine guns and potentially they might have a weapon. It escalated quickly. Fascinating thing about that is, is that the, all the terrorist group, even the guy who shot the him, uh, who shot the security guard, they're all really shook up about it. They're sad. They're not crazy. They're not people who have, well, maybe they are, but they're not people who are doing this out of anger. As they say, they say it's not done out of anger but in desperate plea for everlasting peace. Certainly a group who has complex motives. It's a very diverse group. We'll see what happens. Does the government immediately give in to their demands? Yeah. Well, and and I I thought maybe it'd be worth taking a second to kind of Mm. a little more background on on what they're trying to do. So at one point, their their first statement that they give, and they give maybe a handful of statements to the the media while they're on this uh, boat where they have a live feed to the the world through RBS. Um, They basically say... Look, we want – they even say this is going to be – they want the United States to take on unilateral disarmament, at least for the weapons in the Charleston area. They're not saying the entire government's disarmament. They just want Charleston specifically. But in their mind, by forcing the government to do that, they think 
that will kickstart some kind of global acknowledgement for the need to disarm and Russia and others will follow suit simply by forcing the United States to disarm Charleston, which I don't know, didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't find it as compelling emotionally or intellectually, but they were at least convinced of it. And so then the question is, are you really going to be able to kickstart something? And I guess to add urgency to the situation, they bring a nuclear weapon yeah. to say, if you don't do it, we're going to blow up all of Charleston, which I would think if you're some kind of group that's trying to get public sentiment on your side, maybe a nuclear weapon along with your demands may not mm. be the uh, best way to do it. But well, I think it kicks it up a notch. And part of the idea I think the group has is to force the government to make a decision. Is Charleston worth those atomic bomb triggers because in a way they could get rid of those triggers and build other ones it doesn't destroy the weapon you can take the trigger out and repair it and put a new one in maybe even a better trigger but it's it's the forces that question about what they feel like they value and it makes the public wonder whether or not they have faith in their ability to handle the nuclear enterprise so i think that's part of the angle there i know that frida barton seems like she hints at that whether or not they win the triggers doesn't matter they've gotten their message out to the public right so as we go, there, there's the question. They, they give this deadline by which they want the government to respond, whether they're going to give up the detonators. And basically, they're on the tugboat because they want to take the equipment, once surrendered by the government, out to see where it'll be destroyed. By 4.30, they want the triggers. And then by 6 o'clock, if they don't have it, the bomb will automatically go off. Yeah, and that that's an important point that they, they actually have a literal countdown clock on, on the yeah. bomb. So it's not like they have their finger on the trigger and uh, they could do it at any time. They, they, they've they imposed their own timing uh, on the, the resolution of the, the issue. At one point, there's, you know, for a, probably a good half hour, there's a speculation about whether it's a hoax or not, despite their resumes that they've been able to put together. And then eventually Lane Smith's character is able to uncover that there was actually Actually, plutonium that was found missing uh, that gets everyone in a frenzy and then they start to piece together that yes they actually do think that a nuclear weapon is on board I love it when the Department of Energy spokesperson says there's no reason to believe that this is real however we are going to start mandatory evacuations for all of Charleston for public safety purposes right. just to keep calm right. we're going to have an entire city evacuate but so then there then there's the well-informed frenzy that oh they actually do have a bomb and so they're waiting on a response from the government. And all the while, the, the news network is cutting to the boat where seemingly the, the terrorists don't really police the media statements or mm-hmm. the media coverage. You know, we, we think of, I think, a lot of the media coverage of like terrorist groups as very disciplined. You know, we have a 90 second statement and mm-hmm. then it, it's cut out or we have a very specific demand that we want to make. This, it seems like the RBS just goes, let's go to the, the boat now for their reaction. And then the camera guy is just recording willy-nilly, even as, like, the terrorists are sitting there, like, sleeping or just kind of hanging out. And then they just kind of go up to him, like, right. what do you think about this? Well, at, what, at one point, McKeeson interrupts the news program because they were talking about whether or not this was a hoax and, and media coverage and whether or not they should let them have the feed. Then they go – they have, like, a back and forth, which I think is one of the most powerful parts of the movie where McKeeson accuses uh, Woolsey – the anchor at, at RBS and about the fact that the media is is feeding off of this. They they're excited that this is happening because they're going to get all these great ratings. And they said, if you're really so concerned about the story and not really about the ratings, why don't you give up your exclusive feed of this situation? And Another- he had that cool shot, like a mirror, where he goes over to the TV and he's looking yeah. at 
footage of himself looking at a TV of himself. Infinitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's just like, go ahead and cut the feed. And then he just kind of waits, and there's like this five, six, seven second pause. And he's like, oh, I guess you're not cutting it. Well, okay, I'm done now. And he, he almost has yeah. – it's funny. He has like a literal drop the mic moment, and then it actually like <laughs> falls over, and he has to like pick it up. They also have a lot of uh, human interest piece that the news station is doing about uh, the fact that everyone's been evacuated. They're setting up um, at local high schools and whatnot. They're setting up shelters for people, and people at first were kind of worried about it, but then – Well, it's all the like – tropes of local or cable news journalism that everyone kind of knows and appreciates because they kind of expect a certain polish to mm-hmm. journalism but also the stuff that people hate where you know the guys walking in front of people is like and the spirit of charleston is strong back to you you know that kind mm-hmm. of and, and it was funny as we were watching it, I think we were both kind of making comments now and then where, oh, of course you'd go, you'd cut to the local Charleston Historical Society, you know, expert who would talk about how Charleston has dealt with crises in the past and stuff like that. And you're like, I could totally see Wolf Blitzer saying, oh, we're going to cut now to a Charleston Historical Society. And, and just all these moments where it's from the 80s, which and the technology is obviously a little dated in terms of camera quality. But then you're thinking, I don't know, this hasn't changed a whole lot. Yeah. They would be citing Twitter comments, uh. certain online rumor stuff. But, I mean, they'd still have the same think tank expert, Pentagon spokesperson. Mm -hmm. I mean, they still did the cutting back and forth with all the various pieces of the bureaucracy, you know, Capitol Hill, the White House, the Pentagon. I I thought that added to the realism, even though certain aspects of the execution of the the storyline, you know, it's very efficient in terms of all the information that kind of lines up piece by piece. I think the one thing we don't see in the movie, because it's a movie, it has to finish in an hour and a half or two hours or something, is that because it's over the course of two days, the same information would be repeated over and over and over again under the banner of breaking news. And that's kind of how we do it today because there is 24-hour news. It's a thing that's pretty firmly established and people expect when they turn on the television at 3 a.m. that's going to be something Instead of the movie, they just cut away. They do time lapse. Right. There's a certain leveraging or exploitation of when you didn't have as much technology available Mm -hmm. to do constant live discussion, you would kind of have to wait until you have some updates and then they could splice it together and have like a little montage that is very efficient for the audience. So so anyways, speaking of efficiency – Back to the plot. How, <laughs> how, how is it actually resolved? And eventually, as it gets close to the deadline, the United States government announces that it will accommodate. <laughs> they don't negotiate. They accommodate the request where they say they will truck the detonation equipment uh, that they've removed from the warheads to the tugboat. So then there's this elation that, that you see from video inside the boat where everyone's like, oh, we won, we won. And then you start to see these trucks come up to the boat and you see these people starting to take stuff out. But while they're doing that, the video feed into the boat gets cut and all of a sudden they start to panic a little bit and say, wait, what what happened to our video feed? There's nothing intentional here. Every television... Why don't you tell that to Dr. Lyman because he can't hear anything over the monitor now. Dr. Lyman, we understand there's been a power failure in a transmitter in North Charleston. What? It has nothing to do whatsoever with what you're seeing on the dock. What? Every television in Charleston is off the air. What? They say there's been a power failure. No, no, there's not a power. They're having a power failure right now. Paranoia takes over the, the group where they say, Wait, what's going on? Is this a trick? 
And then from the outside, you have the RBS journalists who are watching the boat from the outside, and they discover that there's a Delta Force team that was slowly sneaking up on mm -hmm. the boat as the trucks were arriving, so there was a distract distraction. And then what's in pro probably one of the more dramatic moments of the, well, we think it's the dramatic moment. We see the actual Delta Force commandos storm the boat, and the, <laughs> the cameraman is getting great footage while you know in the middle of a uh, a shootout which is in a very confined space mm -hmm. in a tugboat so you're not talking about a big shootout uh but you see basically uh almost all of the terrorist group get shot and killed uh McKeeson actually runs down to the bomb and he in a last ditch effort to get the delta force to back off he you know says oh i'll i'll, I'll do it i'll do it he ends up if i remember correctly committing suicide he, he shoots himself which which i think was interesting because one of the main storyline I think that it comes out near the end is that McKeeson is going to die soon because he has probably advanced stage of leukemia because as he was stealing the plutonium out of the Hanford plant, he contaminated himself probably also while building the bomb. There's a couple of references to the fact that his white blood cell count is down. They make this point that the bomb has no worry for him. He's not worried about it because he's already going to go, but he still ultimately in the end decides not to blow it up himself. He has a much more fatalistic view of yeah. the whole situation than I think Lyman. I think Lyman definitely looks to like a, a positive future as a potential Whereas McKeeson is much more negative view, mm -hmm. maybe not cynical, but just a sense of this won't end well no matter how it ends. Even if right. we get what we want, it's not going to end. Yeah, I, I guess he would say that his glass of heavy water is half empty. Oh, that's, that's a good one. Um, there's, you know, again, the celebration now from the news people because they think, oh, we actually got the terrorists. There's this point where the reporter who is a hostage just comes out. And typically you'd think that the FBI or the military mm -hmm. would ship, you know, take him away for questioning and debriefing. No, they just let him come out of the boat. And then he just keeps reporting. He's like, oh, we're out now. And there's this kind of somber moment where uh, they bring out the bodies of the dead terrorists. It's kind of. In, in most of the movie, it's more of like frantic talking over mm -hmm. each other where uh, frantic breaking news, real-time news, you don't know what's going on. And then every once in a while, there's kind of a very silent moment. So the reporter, you can tell, is reflecting on the fact that he'd spent so much time with these people yeah. and now they're dead. And he's just trying to like come to terms after being so excited with the fact that, that well, survived, they, yeah. did all the, they did kill all these people and he could have easily died. Then one of the anchors pulls the worst thing you can do. He says, the amazing thing is that the, uh, the bomb didn't explode. Well, I suppose that could still happen. We have a... Dude, don't jinx it. <laughs> you have to at least knock on your uh, hopefully wooden anchor table. I mean, if I was that reporter, I'd be like, I'm getting in my car and I'm driving <laughs> as far away as possible as long as you let me do that. He, he, but he stays with his cameraman. I feel bad. We never really saw... George. Yeah, the, the cameraman. Uh, and you never hear from him either. You right. know, it's like nothing, even though he's the one giving you most of the, uh, the exciting footage. A Nest team comes in, mm -hmm. and uh, Tim will speak to that, you know, that group a little bit more. The Nuclear Emergency Search Team. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, elite group to actually disarm the bomb. They apparently have a live video and audio feed of the Nest team as they're trying to disarm the bomb. Yeah, like I thought live that was, on that's the insane. air. Because if they would have successfully finished it, there's now a video of a homegrown bomb and right. the inner workings of All it their that procedures. someone can look at. Right. Uh, yeah, that, well, you know, 
crazy, but it's a it makes for great TV. Right. And so you have this overlap of people talking where it's the mm-hmm. people in the newsroom, the um, the newscaster at the side of the boat, the audio of the Nest team members as they're trying. It's like grainy black and white footage as they're trying to undo it. And there's been this talk about uh, how McKeeson may have added like booby traps and, and stuff to deter people from dismantling the bomb. A- as you hear them talking, it's almost like what you'd hear from like NASA back and forth, mm. you know, Houston, blah, 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 installing this, taking out this. And then it gets more frantic, and they say, oh, what happened there? Whoa. 4.3 here. Whoa, 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 what's this voltage? Can you freeze it? It was already separated. He clipped it. Is that one? So, whoa, whoa, 4. whoa, 6. it's frying now. All right, all right, 8-4 procedure, implement, go, all right, 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 Steve, you and George, get out of there. Oh, I'm sorry, John, I, I couldn't hear you last question. No, come on, come on. No, things seem pretty calm here right now. There's not a... And then all of a sudden, the video cuts out. And then the people in the newsroom are like, what just happened? And they don't really know, and they're wondering, could just the tugboat have blown up? What happened? And then they cut to a newscaster that was about two miles away, at least well, according they, to the they movie. They say she's two miles away, Meg Barkley. Who's on some uh, military boat. And they boat. cut to it's, her. Excuse me, the USS Yorktown. The USS Yorktown, yeah. Uh, and then they cut to it, and there's flames everywhere. And it's this very like dramatic scene where she's basically just survived a nuclear blast. The tugboat nuclear weapon actually did go off, and they show from a two-mile distance all this flame in the background in kind of a again a very efficient but somewhat odd discussion Mm -hmm. she's like talking about her like we almost died and then she goes but we have video footage of the detonation and then the newscasters in the room say oh yeah go ahead and pull that video footage up and it's like she she literally has people dead you know dead people colleagues on the ground pulling glass off of her uh co-worker's back who's dead on the floor and that's the only thing that the newscaster can Right. ask for is uh, can you get the, can you play the footage and i thought you know for the, the beginning of it is very dramatic and i thought compelling where it's oh yeah like what what, what yeah. would it be like if you actually heard from someone who had just survived uh, a blast but then the whole like video footage i feel like they could have done it like oh mm-hmm. we have someone separately who got video footage of it and they could splice it in but well it's i think it's again it's one of these commentary on the media and what they focus on that's true they, they say go ahead and, and pull up the video and you right. can almost see in her the look like, in her eyes like they they want us to play the video because that there's a line that meg barkley says um it haunts me every time i think about it is when the reporter is just saying <sighs> we saw it didn't you see it look look Look, just look at it. It's on fire. Everything's on fire. Oh my God. It's a moment that I think that they do extremely well. There's no music throughout the, all, the whole movie except for the, the silly jingles of the news station. But I think that's a moment in particular that lets it breathe. Yeah. And it's, it, it still is, it, ooh, gets me. Well, and for, and for me, the, the line that got me was uh, she asked in a very, uh, like, totally like i have no idea she says 
Is the radiation coming now? Does anybody know that? I mean, are we hurt? Are we going to die? <laughs> and then you realize that in real life situations where nuclear bombs have gone off, like for the people who survived, mm -hmm. you have no idea what's, what's next in terms of radiation and fallout and all that stuff. So then they do show video of the actual explosion which is kind of a big white light situation and, and and like the camera falling off but it's it's very unlike what you see kind of in current movies mm -hmm. where it's from far away or from space or and you kind of see the full mushroom cloud and everything it's very yeah. much a first person on the ground it's lucky that they haven't got the shot it was kind of in the background right the camera was just rolling b-roll right and it's from there that they then cut to all this typical news coverage type uh, commentary of Oh, so many people seem to have died. Here's footage of the wreckage. Uh, we had a statement from this government official. This might be the rebuilding time frame of mm -hmm. a couple of years. And it, you start to realize you, you, they've already moved on from the emotional weight of a nuclear bomb just went off in Charleston yeah. to, oh, you know, here's the, the death toll as if it was like some kind of earthquake or just another natural event. And then in kind of what I thought it was like the sharpest critique of the whole thing the newscasters then switch to talking about other news events of the day, like something at the World Bank because of some Peru currency crisis. They mention some um, labor strike in Poland, and they say more on that in our next news segment, as yeah. if it's just, and it's, oh, this we're is going back days, to normal. This is three days later. Right, yeah. yeah. And that's how the movie ends. At that point, you can start to see if you were really confused this entire time, thinking it was real, when they start having actors' names at the end of the movie, you go, whew, that was close. Joel, thanks very much for running through that. This is the point of the podcast where we get super critical. We have a couple things, I think, to talk about for this in terms of nuclear points. But let's, uh, let's first talk about the bomb itself and the way it was described by the terrorists and what we see and then what it would actually be like in the real world. So here's some of the specs of the bomb as described by the tugboat group themselves. They say it's an implosion device with fifth generation mechanics, classic Los Alamos design, 5.2 kilos of plutonium stolen from Hanford, Washington. And by comparison, uh, the Fat Man bomb that was used against uh, Nagasaki, Japan, that had 6.2 kilograms of plutonium, 239. It has anti-tamper devices that will detonate if you mess with them or if the boat is moved or attacked. This bomb ended up actually being 23 kilotons of explosive yield at the end, which is even more than the 20 kiloton device that was exploded over Nagasaki, that Fat Man bomb. So it has less plutonium, but because it's a more modern design, it was more efficient with how it used it, it looks like. Um, and I love the line that the doctor says that we are not amateurs. We built this thing pretty well. But let's, let's talk about this, because we're also not amateurs at being super critical. I plotted this bomb on NukeMap, which is a website tool developed by Alex Wellerston of Stevens Institute of Technology. We talked about this a little bit on some of our previous episodes, but it's a, a pretty fun tool if you ever want to know what the effects of a nuclear bomb that would go off in your hometown or you know your, your ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend's house, and you can pick what kind of bomb, the size, if it's an air burst, if it's on the ground. Uh, but this really lets me play with the movie bombs versus what how they're described in, in the movie or real life. And I'll link to the how I plotted this out in our show 
show notes so that you can play with it and see the dimensions and the particular uh, factors that I put into it. Uh, in the movie, there is a scene where the reporter talks about the MIT physics department plotted out everything. So there's that 1980s graphic, uh, kind of like a grid, 3D grid outline of Charleston. Think like Terminator 1 yes. computer graphics. Exactly. Uh, and they say that the yield of the bomb will be the equivalent to the Hiroshima bomb. They kind of go back and forth about whether or not it's the Hiroshima bomb yield or the, the Nagasaki bomb. But the Hiroshima bomb was only 13 to 15 kilotons. For the time, lower than the, the, the bomb that was eventually used um, against Nagasaki. Now, the Hiroshima bomb was a uranium bomb design, a very simple, untested bomb design. And we talked about that quite a lot in our most recent mini-nuke episode on, on Jaws. Yes, the movie Jaws has some nuke stuff, uh, but I would check into that. We talk a little bit about that particular bomb itself. So this yield is a little bit off from what the terrorists are saying about their own bomb and what ends up happening in the film itself. Uh, a quick reminder, uh, we talked about this previously, I think in maybe the first couple of episodes, and then we decided that yeah, we've talked about it enough, but I'll do a quick reminder. There's four basic types of energy that is released from an atomic explosion. You've got the blast, which is the pressure and the shock wave. That's about 40 to 50% of the total energy that gets, re gets released. This is the thing that knocks over buildings. Uh, thermal radiation, heat, 30 to 50% of the total energy of a bomb. You have ionizing radiation. This is the stuff that can cause cell mutations. Uh, this is about 5% of the total energy mass for most bombs. There's neutron bombs where you can manipulate that to make that a lot higher. We'll talk about a little bit about that later. And then there's residual radiation fallout. That if it's a ground burst attack or if it's an air burst that occurs during a, a rainstorm where there's particles for the radioactive material to catch onto, this falls down to earth and continues to uh, spontaneously fission and producing gamma radiation and, and other stuff that you don't really want to have attached to you. That's only about 5 to 10 percent of the total energy mass of their explosion. So those are the different things that normally happen with an atomic bomb. And now let's talk about how it happened in the show. Um, overall, I would say the bomb and its effects, even if the special effects weren't great, the bomb effects are fairly uh, accurately depicted in the, in the TV movie. Someone definitely did their homework, even though, uh, again, this is a, a TV movie. The movie reports a little under 2,000 killed and 25,000 injured. Nuke map estimates about 6,000 killed with 20,000 injured. These numbers are pretty close, especially if you think about the fact that there's been a lot of population growth in Charleston since 1983, um, and the fact that a lot of the city in the movie was evacuated. So it actually kind of makes sense. In 1980, the population of Charleston was about 70,000. In 2010, that's now closer to 120,000 people that live there. So I would say that roughly matches up pretty good. They didn't say millions of people have been killed by this bomb. They didn't try to exaggerate it like other movies and TV shows might have done. In terms of the imagery, you get your bright light, you have a flash fire where all of a sudden everything within eyesight of the bomb going off catches on fire, things that are combustible, like I think like all the, 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 the tables and the chairs and the napkin holders, so just catch on fire uh, in that particular scene. About two seconds later, you've got the wind and the blast wave come through flying glass through the window, uh, and you have loud noises, flying glass, all of that. And then you have the scene, the angle that we see the bomb go off is the reporter in the field, Meg Barkley. She was on the USS Yorktown. She says it's two miles from the bomb 
I plotted this out on Google Maps. Uh, it's only one mile away from because you can see it's all filmed on location. You can you can see exactly where they're filming the port of, of Charleston. It's only one mile, but that's okay. It doesn't it plays around with their numbers a little bit. But I I am I'm assuming that they're actually one mile away because as this would actually happen in real life. So do you think they said two miles in order to make it more plausible that they survive? Yes, the initial blast. That's my guess. Um, it's not impossible they would survive. Um, I think that's the reason why. They put a little bit of distance more in the harbor. Mm-hmm. According to Nuke Map, there would be first the air blast that we talked about. This is 20 psi, which would have a radius of about half a mile, where even concrete buildings would be severely damaged or demolished. Fatalities within this 0.46 uh, half a mile range would be near 100%. The movie says half a mile. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good uh, so far. Uh, then there's another element of the air blast when it starts to peter out a little bit 5 psi which would knock over most non-concrete buildings uh, would be extended out to 0.8 miles they would have definitely have felt some kind of effect from their location but not from two miles away and the fact that yorktown it's a moored aircraft carrier that's uh, that has that been, ret- been retired it's now a, a, a museum um that i've that i've been to before it's pretty it's a pretty great place to check out uh, you can actually stand right on top of the carrier itself, and you can see <laughs> across the bay where the bomb would have gone off. You have a fireball. The bomb would have had, a, in real life, a 910 feet extension, a radius, uh, for that fireball, which is it's pretty far. Uh, but it's not as far as you see in some movies where it just continues to extend, extend, and extend. But the important thing to think about this is— A Terminator where it destroys all of Los Angeles. Well, the thing is is that the Terminator bomb was probably way larger than this. We're yeah. talking—this bomb is 23 kilotons. Most modern bombs now are in the hundreds of kilotons, like 350. The uh, Chinese have uh, warheads that are in the megaton range. Um, they even mentioned in the movie a one megaton bomb that the Soviets had— at that particular time. Now, they dramatically exaggerate how quickly people would, would be destroyed and vaporized. Right. I think that's a little crazy. That doesn't match up to the way it would actually work. But that, that gives you a sense that if you say, oh, wow, Charleston, only 2,000 dead, that's not that big of a deal. That's because this bomb is not matching at all most modern weapons. Uh, we are no longer talking about these days city center destroying bombs. We're talking about city leveling bombs. Right. City metropolitan area destroying bombs. And I, and I thought there, when the, the expert is giving his three-dimensional diagram explanation, you, you get through it all and then, you know, as an audience, and then I think one of the newscasters says, oh, is this, you know, what we get from, like, Russia, mm-hmm. you know, and then he kind of gives this, let's just say if that happened, and then he kind of gives the, yeah. I think he says 10 million would die. I, well, I think he said five miles away, anyone would be instantly vaporized. Right. And and that was a second. I felt like that was a, a big moment for the layman who it, they're trying to get a sense of the scale. I think mm-hmm. people, okay, I understand Charleston. Okay, I can see that being blown up. And they're like, wait, so the Soviet ones are even yeah. bigger. That's where the movie kind of helps ground the audience in terms of what the scale of the issue broadly, not just in that tugboat nuclear bomb, but like what nuclear bombs can do generally. Well, these estimates are very hard to get exactly right because if you have a ground burst bomb, something that gets destroyed near the surface, uh, you have buildings that are in the way of the oncoming blast. Within a certain range, everything is just gone. It's a crater. But the further you get out, when it knocks over a building, energy from the blast gets absorbed by the building, and the following line of sight direction from that building, there's less force. So you may get the situation where it's not an even distribution 
of force throughout it. So it's kind of hard to predict if you're standing in one spot versus another spot of this within this circle of the blast as it's going out, you may have different effects completely. And it's also different if it's an air burst, which is what you do most of the time against non-hardened targets, against things like cities. Whoever would be attacking us would not fire a bomb to hit the ground. They would fire it a couple thousand feet up in the air so that you have a wider area where there's a, a level of force that can knock over more buildings. So that gives you a little bit more of a sense of how maybe when he says five miles, that could be potentially a thing. I, I still plugged it in, nuke map, as an airburst, and it didn't get out that far. But it certainly had quite a large blast. Uh, the burns, third-degree burns, could be potentially going out to six miles, but you wouldn't be instantly vaporized. But one thing I really like that they mentioned in this, and they mentioned this in the MIT report, is that the immediate fireball and the blast wave is not the only thing you should worry about. You should worry about firestorms that get created when a nuclear bomb goes off. Because if you imagine, you're disrupting a whole bunch of different infrastructure in the city. You basically are knocking pipes that have natural gas that causes fires to get started. You have instantly flash fires for anything that's like a, a wooden building. A fire can get started in that, and those continue to go. And you also have a mushroom cloud of heat that's rising up into the air because of the fact that there's so much heat, and it's drawing in all of the cooler air surrounding the center of the detonation. And you have the situation where the air gets fired out in the blast wave, and then the air comes rapidly back. The, the air will get pulled in, the cooler air from outside will get pulled into the center. And you get this vortex effect where small fires here and there become a massive firestorm. And that's the thing that will just continue to burn and burn and burn. And if you're in a city where that is possible, if you have buildings that are closely, densely populated and, and set together, that's the thing that you really need to worry about. And a lot of bomb calculations only take pressure into account they don't take the fact that a whole city will continue to burn yeah well in the movie to their credit actually yeah. focused on that because i mean there's the imagery of you know not just one building and they Everything. show like individual buildings but they show like seven eight nine buildings and then you realize well even a, a small city if all of the buildings were on fire you already think of a lot of damage and loss yeah. of life for one building that has firefighters stopping it but can you imagine 20 30 buildings like mini skyscrapers, what do you, do? you know, 10, 15 stories. I mean, that's a massive amount of loss of life, even after the, you know, the initial wave and you mm -hmm. know, what we think of as the moment of a nuclear explosion. And, and Firestorm, I think, is a motif in the movie. It's one thing I only noticed upon watching it again is that there's a lot of times where the, the term Firestorm is used literally. And there are times where Lane Smith, who plays that reporter on the beat in, in Washington, he uses the term firestorm as like a figurative thing that, oh, the fact that there's these leaks out there, it's causing a firestorm of discussion. It's a little plain with the idea that you have these euphemisms for things and we use them in a normal conversation, like how people use the word literally all the time when they really mean like exaggerating I mean they force. literally use it all the time right I think that's a it's a little subtle commentary and I also love how that reporter is so excited that he's getting all these leaks and information and he's like breaking the news and that the news is about a bomb about to go off in an American city and he's really seemingly more focused on the fact he's smiling I just got this news story I'm batting a thousand look how great I am but he's like saying um, look how great I am about the fact that there's about to be a city that's going to be destroyed I little meta commentary there uh, continuing on in our, our wave of uh, destruction the cornucopia of destruction here in the MIT department they say that one mile away in direct sight someone would be instantly burned to death or vaporized now 
this is a exaggeration. Thermal radiation or heat would extend about 0.67 miles, but it would peters out way before it finally ends at that particular point. Now, heat would be dangerous and it can, can, can cause third degree burns and other and start fires, but it wouldn't vaporize you that far away. Um, but out to about a mile, 0.9 miles, would be prompt radiation, this kind of ionizing radiation. So anyone would, that doesn't receive immediate treatment from this would have a 50 to 90% mortality rate, anywhere from several hours to several agonizing weeks. That's certainly something that Meg Barkley talks about. It didn't seem like she was in direct line of sight. She was behind some metal structure inside USS Yorktown, but I think she would probably still been within that range. It would be dangerous. In terms of a crater, in real life, there would be a 100-foot deep crater that's 360 feet wide. The movie estimates 300 feet wide. So again, gets that uh, pretty close. So I guess one one point to the MIT department there. In real life, there would be third-degree burns out to 1.27 miles that can cause scarring or disablement and, and may possibly require amputation. Uh, this is getting dark, but I promise we're almost over. There will be a fallout cloud. They talk about this a little bit. The footprint, the nuclear footprint, which essentially it depends on the prevailing wind direction, where the wind is going, about how far the fallout clouds would go. And these t traditionally in the surrounding area come and start at about a half an hour to an hour and a half when it starts to fall down to the earth. It depends on how close it was to the ground. Nuke map estimates that to be about four miles out to the west if you say that's where the wind is going. The movie says five miles wide, 50 mile long contamination. That might be a lot, but I don't know. It depends a lot on the wind conditions. So if they were estimating in the movie that that's how the wind was going, then that could be possibly where it is. And finally, the movie says that historic landmarks like Fort Sumter would be completely destroyed. This is probably incorrect. The island is way outside the blast zone, about four to five miles from where it takes place in the movie. Nevertheless, the place that's the famous for the first shots fired in the Civil War would probably not end up being a very popular tourist location for quite a long time. Can I just say, I, I didn't get why they focused on that. Wow. Noting that Fort Sumter was going to be, I mean, maybe they thought, oh, that would be a way to ground it as like, oh, this is a real place. But that's, that's exactly what the that's exactly what the news would do. They would that's what people know about yeah, about true, Charleston. They would I, say, I just thought it was funny. Like, think about the monuments. Of Joel. course, like a hundred and fifty year old like building would be destroyed if there's any <laughs> any residual impact from a, a nuclear weapon. But I, I, to your point, I'll, I'll concede that that is something that they would do to kind of you know, Wolf would be like, I'm Wolf Blitzer. Let's go to Fort Sumter now, where they're looking at the walls. Yeah. Uh, well, this is something because it's it's Charleston and people live in Charleston and and have watched this movie and some of them are still watching it today, wondering what it would be like if it were to actually happen. I came across an an, an article in the Charleston City Paper in 2013 about the movie. It quotes Beth, and I apologize for mispronouncing this, uh, Genwick, who is a graduate student uh, at both College of Charleston and the Citadel, the military academy in Charleston. She says, if Charleston were nuked today. Anyone living downtown would see their real estate values immediately plummet. Folly Beach and the Isle of Palms residents would probably survive, but they would need to relocate fast or suffer serious radiation poisoning. Anything living in Charleston Harbor would likely be obliterated due to heat. Dolphins, oysters, pelicans, etc. Seagulls would lose their free lunch at our garbage dumps. Their numbers would begin to drop, making room for other shore birds and scavengers. Palmetto trees might weather the storm, although palmetto bugs would take a hit before returning in swarms. Within several decades, Charleston might go back to nature, 
but it would be highly radioactive. Little local color, little commentary from the local graduate student, but that's that's how they're still talking about it today. Sounds like she's ready for RBS news. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, everybody died, but it might come back in a few decades. Yeah, it's, it's too bad for the seagulls, but uh, the other shorebirds would be, get to take advantage of it. So there's a lot of things that we could cover in this podcast, but it's already going to be a long one. So I would point to some other previous episodes that we've done since we've been doing this for such a long time. The issue of the whether or not terror groups can build nuclear weapons, we talk about that a lot in our first episode, True Lies, the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, James Cameron, Jamie Lee Curtis movie, where we talk about the fact that there are a lot of steps in terms of stealing a plutonium from a facility and then building it. These are a lot of different things where you could be caught over a period of time. But it's also really difficult. Probably it somewhat hints that the fact that they did this over a couple of months, that Dr. McKeeson stole it over a long period of time by like hiding it inside of his clothing. It, he maybe would be able to get away with it, but I think that she really shows the problem with the worry about insider threat, that you build all of these safeguards and countermeasures to protect nuclear material. But if you got someone working on the inside, that makes your job a lot harder. Um, although I thought I did think it was kind of odd that they built an, an implosion bomb instead of a uranium bomb, which is a much simpler design. Implosion bombs require precise conventional explosions. Joel, these are the ones that it's like a, a, a round sphere of plutonium that gets compressed down into a much smaller size. And you have to have the explosives have to happen very precisely. You need these like very particular triggers and everything to get set up there. It's a little bit odd that they decided to do that instead of just a uranium bomb, but I don't, maybe this guy is just that good. Uh, we talk a lot about nest teams in episode eight, the peacemaker. Uh, this is the team that is, goes out there and confirms whether or not there is fissible material on board the boat. Uh, although they end up screwing the plutonium pooch at the end, causing that to happen. I love that scene because you got this guy, Larry, who is one of the, the nest team members who tries to leave like a second before it goes to explode. And he's later, Larry's like, I got I got I'm out of here, man. But we talked a little bit about that, the fact that uh, nest teams are trained to dismantle bombs. They're the ones who go, if there's some sort of an accident somewhere dealing with nuclear material, they're the ones that are trained to handle it, to, to contain it. They come from all different kinds of agencies, Department of Energy, Department of Homeland Security, all different places they work together. They have at events like the Super Bowl, they're often people that become like plain closed individuals walking around with uh, radiation detection equipment in their backpacks or their purses, just, just checking, making sure to see if there are any sort of hits. They do a lot of activities like that, but it's very sensitive. And then we also get really into civil defense in our second mini nuke episode, which was about the romantic comedy blast from the past. So I would check that one out to talk. We talk a lot about fallout shelters and civil defense and evacuations and things like that. But yeah, so check some of those out. So there are city evacuations in the movie. The city of Charleston is evacuated uh, by the order of the president. And you see a little bit of like they put a, a document up on the screen that says nuclear civil protection plan for Charleston. And but it doesn't end up working uh, that well. There's traffic problems. People get into fights. There's shortages of space and supplies at the shelters. There's a sense of shock and helplessness and anger at the terrorists and the authorities if they can get this done. I think this is what likely would happen if there was a city evacuation plan. Best laid plans of mice and men, right? Don't really work out the way they do. I think that the movie accurately depicts that these things would end up being a problem. And there's also some people who argue 
that city evacuation is a way to to supplement your nuclear deterrence. Like if you can say to the uh, your enemy, hey, in like a day, we can evacuate our entire city. So therefore you have no targets. You can't destroy our population. That might be a way to tell someone don't start a fight because you're not going to be able to hit the things that you want to hit. It's, it's a controversial idea because it really ends up being something that probably won't actually happen practically because it's very difficult to evacuate an entire city that quickly, especially if the bombs are incoming. It's something you would do in a crisis, but it's something at least to mention uh, here, and I'll have some more things about that in our show notes. And Joel, I don't know if you thought it, the movie talked about enough about the fact that people would be panicking, but even in Atlanta, which would be far enough away from the bomb, people were freaking out thinking that maybe that there was a bomb in their city. And there's rumors starting to spread about whether or not there was bombs in every city. If it, You think that would actually would happen in, in real life? I think maybe. I mean, part of me thinks, well, if you had gotten all that backstory of the group, how it was this one random group, mm-hmm. it would be hard. You know, if there's some network like an Al- Al-Qaeda or an ISIS, you know, where they're saying, oh, we have lots of bombs or something like that, then I could see that causing a much broader panic. Mm. It seems odd that, you know, you would have had all these different cities. My guess is, is that was just their attempt to illustrate how one particular city being threatened could still cause panic around the country. So I, I, I don't know. I, I didn't dwell on it. I, I thought it was understandable for like a, a news organization mm. to point to the broader impact, however trivial it might be i mean obviously it was like some kind of crazy people who are saying oh you know i've got a nuclear bomb in in the backyard or you know like police officer who's complaining that they're all like crazy hoaxes and stuff like that false alarms that probably would happen you know in in the aftermath of any kind of tragedy crazy people across the country saying crazy things people don't really understand what's happening and especially in terms of us as people not there and we would be watching on the news you would get all kinds of false reports you have Situations when there's an active shooter in a, in a city, everyone says, oh, I saw someone else. So then it becomes there's like 15 shooters. And then it turns out there was just one because of in the middle of a situation, people don't really even people that are eyewitnesses may not understand the full picture. They only get part of it. But I do think that I like the fact that the movie doesn't just talk about the military or just talk about the president. It has people like the Department of Energy's National Se- Nuclear Security Administration and the National Labs all have a role in this because these are the ones who actually would in real life do the determination if nuclear material was used. And because most of the Department of Energy's budget, you would think this is a recently has come up when uh, the new Secretary of Energy didn't really understand that the Department of Energy mostly does nukes and not other kinds of energy stuff because most of their budget goes to the NNSA and radioactive cleanup efforts. All right. And the last thing here, uh, I think this is kind of fun. The, they talk about the uh, plutonium that built the bomb was from Hanford, Washington, which is a facility that was created during the Manhattan Project as the first large-scale production facility for making plutonium. It was the, it was the one that produced the uh, material that was used for the Trinity test, the first nuclear bomb test, as well as the bomb that was used against Nagasaki, the, the Fat Man bomb itself. After the end of the Cold War, it's been largely decommissioned. So Hanford doesn't exist at all as if it did in 1983 when all the plutonium was stolen by McKeeson. The Department of Energy is right now very much focused on cleaning up decades of radioactive contamination that has occurred there. It's been cocooned in the 1990s, which means it's largely been sealed up so that the radioactive material inside the facility will just continue to decay. And the buildings around it were destroyed and buried. The Hanford site was actually in the news 
uh, fairly recently, on the morning of May 9th, 2017, a section of a tunnel uh, above where contaminated nuclear material was being stored collapsed. This is a facility that billions of dollars have been spent to maintain and decommission, but there's been some issues with backlogs of funding, and this tunnel collapsed, and it took 53 truckloads of dirt to fill the hole back in. And while no radiation was released during the incident, thousands of workers were told uh, by their employer to take cover. Some were evacuated. And I remember watching this on Twitter following the press releases of the day. And it was a pretty scary moment in time. So Hanford continues to be in the news. But there are still some things in, in Hanford. There's a specific Northwest National Lab uh, is located there. And they do, ironically, given this movie, a lot of work on counter-nuclear terrorism. They develop radiation detection and portal monitoring systems to detect, uh, at, say, a port. As McKeeson would probably want, Hanford, Washington, as a plutonium producing facility, doesn't exist uh, pretty much at all today. Shall we play all right, so why don't we take a break from all of this nuclear discussion and, uh, and play a game, break it up a little bit. We have our friend Gabe here, who was our guest on a number of our Star Trek episodes. Uh, anything we have to do with space, he was also on our Martian episode. So, Gabe, thanks very much for coming down to play the game for yeah, us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Special Bulletin pokes fun at the nightly news, who just can't seem to help themselves with putting up fancy graphics and issuing catchphrases, even during moments of dire circumstances. One of the goofiest things that anchor men and anchor ladies do uh, is the sign-off, which is that little jingle at the end of their news program that brands the newscaster and makes the viewer think, I like the cut of that anchor's jib. I'll keep watching this program. There are some classic examples we all know and love. Uh, the fake one, of course, is, is Ron Burgundy's You Say Classy San Diego. But there have been a lot of newscasters on TV and a lot of movies about newscasters with newscasters in them. Let's play a round of the classic game. Can you sign off on this? Who put a question mark in Tim's script? Uh, this is a game where you need to guess whether or not this newscaster sign-off is from a real anchor, a fake anchor, like one on a TV or movie, or maybe a little bit of both. How could it be a little bit of both? Might be a uh, fake news program. I sense, uh, yeah, I sense some trickery coming up. We gotta, we gotta watch out, Joel. Uh, we'll go one and then the other, and then I'll keep a running tally over here. And the winner of this gets a prize: a bag of fifty percent off Easter candy oh from M and M. And it's the good stuff. It's the the, the peanut M and Ms. Easter was Easter was last weekend, and I I still haven't recovered, so that'll be diabetic coma if I win. I don't know if that's an incentive or a disincentive, but <laughs> let's get going here. Uh, because Joel is uh, our normal host and Gabe is our guest, we'll have Gabe get to go first. Real, fictional, or both? The sign-off is, and that's part of our world. That sounds fairly real. I can't, I can't pin down who that is. I'm going to say real. <laughs> we did it! And I will, I'm also going to issue bonus points if you can say who it actually it is. Gabe, that is real, but can right. you tell me who it is? I, let me guess uh, Peter Jennings? Incorrect. No. Dan Rather. Oh, okay. It's his famous one. All and right. that's a part of our world. Joel? I'm Pert Happily, and I just realized I'm not holding my microphone. <laughs> I'm going to say fake. And if I remember, Pert Happily is in uh, Parks and Recreation. <laughs> we did it! That is correct. That's a little bit of an easy one. I'm a big, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of You Heard with Purge. <laughs> All right, Gabe. From Poxitani, so long. All right. I'm thinking about the Groundhog Day movie, so maybe that's in there. I'm going to say fake. 
fake, but yeah. uh, but you know who it is? You no, can say the actor's it, name if you want. It, Bill Murray? <laughs> that is correct. All right, all right, there we go. All right, so two points to Gabe that gives Gabe three. That is from Groundhog's Day. It's from his sign-off, I think, when he gives that beautiful monologue about Groundhog's Day in, in the town. It's the most important holiday of the year. <laughs> to Joel, good day, and may the good news be yours. I'm going to say real? Okay. Any guess on who? I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm just going to guess Walter Cronkite in every single one. Right. You know. This uh, is a very dark moment. So, unfortunately, it's fictional. Oh. It's Les Niesman's from WKRP in Cincinnati. Wow. That's yeah. a deep that's cuts. A, yeah, that's a deep, deep cut. That's a good show, though. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, but that's one of my favorite. Next. Peace. P- peas? Peace. Peace. Okay, peace. Um... MTV News. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sticking up two fingers here. Peace. Do they do the, the two fingers when they say it? I, I need a visual. Uh, too ridiculous to even put in a movie, I feel like. I'm going to say real. And, and I don't, yeah, like, um, yeah, like MTV or, I don't know, something like that. <laughs> it is It is real. Uh, it's Dave Garraways, who's the original host of NBC's Today Show. Are you serious? Yeah, so that was what he said. And then later on, it got used by Arsenio Hall as kind of like a uh, homage to that. And he would do the peace sign. <laughs> but I'm not counting that one. I'm just counting Dave Garraway's. You, you know a lot about your uh, new sign-offs. Uh, I mean, Google might have helped a little bit with this. but You haven't heard Tim's podcast on the newsman? <laughs> Sorry. That's I the other to. podcast. <laughs> Anchors Away is what it's called. <laughs> uh, all right. The next one to Joel. And that's the way it is. I think that's real. Yeah, but uh, who, who says it? Walter Cronkite again. We did it! Yes, and uh, okay. yes. Yeah, that's him. Okay. I was, I was waiting for you to jump in with that. Well, good guess. It worked out well. Let's see if it works out well for Gabe. And so it goes. Um, that sounds kind of real. Uh, I can't tell what it's from, but I'm going to guess real on that. This uh, is a very dark moment. This one is unfortunately a trick question. Uh-oh. Because it is both used by Linda Ellerby from NBC. She's the one who mostly made it famous. Okay. But it was also used by Murphy Brown oh. on the TV show Murphy Brown. There was an episode where Murphy accused uh, Linda Ellerby of stealing it from her. So because they're both in the yeah, pop culture is, uh, ethos, right. it's not like an homage. It's like they both had it. Unfortunately, it's a trick question. Do I, do I get a half point maybe? You get one M&M if you lose. Oh, okay. All right. I'll, I'll take one out of the bag. So the next one. That's the news, and I'm out of here. Hmm. I'm going to say it's real, but I don't know who. But I feel like that would be like a sign-off from someone more recent, like a more modern Yeah, a little, newscaster. A little hipper. Like, That's it, I'm out, and I'm out of here. We'll see you tomorrow. Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> okay. It is real, but it is Dennis Miller from Dennis Miller oh, Live. okay. Yep. All right. I don't know if you would call that real or not, but it's it's Dennis Miller. He had his own program, so I guess that counts. So let's go next to Gabe. All right. Good night and a good tomorrow. That's very, like, friendly. Um, That's very pleasant, like, nice. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say real. I'm going to guess real. We did it! It is correct. Any guess on who it is? Um, Definitely PBS. <laughs> yeah, Charlie Rose. Let's say Charlie Rose. Charlie Rose. It's John Daly from ABC Nightly News. Oh, okay. All right. But not, not a bad uh, train of logic there. Uh, next to Joel. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. 
So not good night and have a good tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, good night pleasant, and have a pleasant, pleasant tomorrow. Pleasant tomorrow is even better than a good tomorrow. That's that's fake. That's in a movie. I feel like I should know this. This is like a very straightforward. I know it's from a movie. Clock is ticking, dude. <laughs> the, the nuclear countdown. This uh, is a very dark moment. Not a bad way of thinking that it was maybe either real or fake because it is another one of the trick uh. questions. So the number of these answers here are from SNL, from their news show, Weekend Update. So this one I count as it's real news, but on a television program that comedy is... Oh, is that what I'm thinking of? That's a little bit of a trick one. So that was what Chevy Chase and Jimmy Fallon would say. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. That's Joel, a hard one. Joel's, Joel's preemptively opening the bag, Tim. This is, <laughs> this is cheating here. Sounds like you guys are colluding. Uh, all right, so the next one. And that's the kind of day it's been. Uh, that sounds kind of like a joke one i'm going to uh i'm gonna say fake this uh, is a very dark moment real oh. it's <laughs> lloyd robertson of ctv canada television so maybe you're insulting <laughs> canadian television yeah, i'm i'm sorry i'm not one of the two people who watches uh, ctv <laughs> apologies to anyone listening from canada but yeah all right all right but yeah lloyd robertson of ctv don't you know gabe canada's cool right now okay joel but we're we're eating the M and M's, so this is completely pointless. <laughs> but anyway, and thanks for stopping by. That's fake. That's Anchorman. It's Anchorman, not Anchor Lady. <laughs> Deal with it. Uh, but what character on Anchorman? Pretty sure that was Veronica Corningstone when she went up against Ron Burgundy. Oh, 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 we did it. <laughs> that is correct and correct. So we have pretty tight game here. Gabe's got six, and Joel's got seven by my count here. The next one is, and here's what's happening in your neck of the woods. I'm going to say real. Okay. Um, oh, God, we did it! Yeah. It is real. All right. I'll say Peter Jennings again. Uh, Al Roker. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess he's, he's an anchor man. He's a, he's a newscaster. It counts. All right. The next one to Joel. And that's news to me. Hmm. I'm going to say real, but I have no idea who. It is Walter Cronkite. <laughs> this uh, is a very dark moment. It's Kevin Nealon on SNL uh, Weekend Update. So, incorrect, incorrect. Uh, next one to Gabe. Some of these are tough. We don't have too many more, so we'll get through here. We're getting close to the end. And that's the way the cookie crumbles. That's fake. I'm trying to think. God, where did I hear that before? I feel like I heard this on Frasier for some reason. Um <laughs> Actually, didn't check to see if Fraser had a sign off. I know, I'm sure he did. Yeah, no, his was um, "Good Day Seattle" and "Good Mental Health." We did it. That's from Bruce Almighty. Oh, Bruce. that's right. Yeah, yeah. and he was that's in Niagara excited. Falls. Yep. Okay, all right. I but knew I heard it somewhere. I, I think we're tied up here, seven to seven. So and we have half a bag of peanut M and M's left. So. <laughs> uh, well, we're not means we're running on fumes. Can I just say, if a candy maker were to sponsor our show, mm -hmm. I would be happy to eat it, the, the candy, or even, you know, coffee, whatever. Something. Throughout the show, talk about it, you know, product sure. placement. Porsche, a Porsche dealership, whatever we got. Yeah, yeah, can we just invite some other sponsors? To... That's in the works for season three. Uh, all right, so the next one here, we're in touch, so you be in touch. That sounds too corny, so it must be real. <laughs> like some kind of, oh, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Almost like local news-esque. Oh, we did it! Well, it is, it is real, but it's, not, but it's not new. It's Hugh Downs and Barbara Walters use this in their really? nightly sign-offs. Mm -hmm. wow. 
But it is it is corny enough to be real. That's Before the way the news works. Before any viewer could actually be in touch with a news organization. <laughs> exactly. They mean, they mean they literally mean for you to send a letter. Yeah, you like, Pony Express phys- the physically get a train ticket. Go to our headquarters. <laughs> go to the lobby. Show up in person and start screaming at us. Next one. Okay. Courage. Jeez. Who would say courage? That's like something you would say. Like that's something you would say drunkenly leaving a party and just like exit. Like I just I just immediately thought of like the Terminator reference where uh, Christian Bale is like, "You are the resistance." <laughs> courage. Uh, I I'm gonna say fake. I mean, I don't think that would be real. This uh, is a very dark moment. Unfortunately, it is real, but it didn't last very long. Dan Rather used that during, I think it was, uh, I think it was post the the Iraq war. And that was, he only had it for a few nights and people called and said, you know, this isn't very good. Did he drop the, like, the little (laughs) tiny mic that attaches to his shirt? Just say courage. Lapel mic drop. Yeah, drop the lapel mic. Wait, so you're saying enough people actually did buy a train ticket, go down to the headquarters, and provide feedback that it was not working for him. You ask for your audience to participate, and sometimes it doesn't always work out the way you want it. So we're eight to seven with Joel uh, has a minor lead here. Next to Joel, bye bye that sounds real, like someone would do that. Mm-hmm. I'm almost thinking like a morning show. I don't know. Who's who's like a Katie Couric? Hmm. Star Jones. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, we did it! It is, it is real. It's John McLaughlin from the McLaughlin Oh, group. right. Oh, wow. no, His wait, rapid wait, wait, fire wait. show. Yep. I, I'll let that go, but I always thought that was more of a bye-bye. You well, did a bye-bye. You know, the words on the page of I'll let that go. If only we had an audio tape that we could go back to check the tape, but we don't. Let's check the tape because this is live, mm-hmm. so we'll never know. Never know. But okay, I, I just get trust it. me on this one. My- All right, bye Gabe. bye. <laughs> All right, Gabe, get a, get a catch up here. Good night and good luck. That's that's uh, from a movie called Good Night and Good Luck. Uh, who was? I, I was waiting for that. <laughs> I'm like, I'm so excited. Um, uh, I don't know the name of the character, but it was George Clooney. Uh, so do I, do I get actor points or? Uh, this is a difficult one. I've ruled this as real because it's Edward R. Murrow, who's the one of the most oh. famous newscasters, and it's a biograph movie of him. Oh, I can't okay. call that a trick question or fake. It's real, but also a movie about that oh, person. Yeah, but but that's like that line where it's like, oh, Romeo and Juliet and stuff like that. There have also been some nice plays made about that movie. <laughs> so what, that. Joel, would you willing to give him one point I for that? I feel like compared with my other half point from before, oh, okay. this half point will now be a full point. I actually right, preemptively gave you the point because I thought it was an easy one. Uh, so I'm just not going to cross it off my list here. I feel, uh, I'll give it to you. I'm just going to start eating the, the candy even faster. So even if you win it. You know. All right. So we had good night and good luck. Good night and good news. Hmm. Okay, we've done Dan Rather. That seems too regular to not be real. Hmm. This uh, is a very dark moment. It's a fictional newscaster, Ted Baxter, from the Mary Tyler Moore Show. That's where she, I think she worked in a, a news wow. station. Wow, all right. Uh, good night and good news. Uh, Joel has nine and Gabe has eight. All right. <clears throat> so we only have, I'm only going to do two more here. All right, time to catch up. Here we go. Gabe? And here it is, your moment of zen. That's from Tosh.0, isn't it? I, is it? This uh, is a very dark moment. Uh, Joel, you want to nail it here? Okay, so it's from The Daily Show. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so yeah, this is a way to rub in the fact that I did not watch. I was like one of the also the two people who didn't watch the Daily Shows. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, all right, all right. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. All right, so the next one to Joel is glad we could get together. That sounds like the BBC. Not gonna lie, it sounds very <laughs> British. I'm gonna say no. I'm gonna say that's from a movie. This uh, is a very dark moment. Unfortunately, it is real. It's really, but it sounds like someone who is in a movie, John Cameron Swayze, but he's from the 1950s on NBC. Oh, right. That's <laughs> yeah. Swayze. I always get the Swayze's. I know. When it's I was very, in the library, you yeah, have to be careful. Archival footage. Yep. Now I remember. I'm going to give Gabe one more chance here to tie it up. That way you guys get to both share the M&Ms as I already have. Here's the last sign off we have here. And thanks for watching. And we'll leave you with Sting and a cut off his new album. Take it away. We'll do it live. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that I. It's the Bill O'Reilly. It's when he like went nuts uh, on camera, and yeah. We did it! All right, so that's it is real, but it's not really a sign off. But I'm going to give you half a point, so it's going to be one point, which ties you both at nine to nine, Ooh. and you can take the M and M's. I'll I'll take them out. We can split them up evenly, so you make sure you both get Done. some. <laughs> oh yeah, because the M and M's are gone. Well, can we all just acknowledge the obligatory joke that that sign off? Is no longer a factor. Uh, okay. Come on, everybody else did it. <laughs> thanks very much, Gabe, for coming down to play the game with us here. All right, thanks, guys. All right, get out of here. We're going to get some more super critical stuff here. Let's move on to what we call the parking lot movie discussion. We wouldn't actually watch this movie at a movie theater because it was a TV movie, but let's pretend like we were at the theater. So the movie's done. We walked outside. We go into our cars. We're in the parking lot talking about what we thought about the movie. Joel, what did you think? Yeah, so I, I noted a handful of things that I thought they did right, and then a couple of things I thought they didn't do very well. So maybe maybe I'll go over... The negatives and I, and you know obviously Tim went through kind of the expert side of being super critical about the movie. I'm just going to be focusing more on the the storyline. There are a couple things. So from the get go, I thought the actual setup of the hostage scene was a little odd. The news reporters they're there and they're filming another segment, and I I thought it was somewhat mm. creative. Like oh they stumble into the shootout, but I thought well, wait a minute, like what actually caused the shootout? Hmm. So you have this tugboat that shows up into the port and then all of a sudden they start shooting at people. Like it seemed odd. So I was thinking, well, what would have caused it? Were, were the Coast Guard trying to stop an unauthorized entry of a boat? Why would they have had all these guns and stuff like that I think from the get-go? Because you got Jim Seaver as a wild card. So it, it just seemed a little odd to me. I mean, it was also very uh, fortunate that they seemed to have a news crew mm -hmm. literally right there that could be taken hostage. I was thinking, I guess, what they would have done is found somebody randomly at the port, taken them hostage, and then demanded a news crew. So that kind of yeah. cut one of their demands out. Where it's like, oh, we already have a news crew that we can take hostage. Perfect. Right. Fortune favors the bold. Uh, right. So they tried to get it going, and they got lucky. Right, but it just seemed odd. Uh, I mean, you. I think you could have just as easily... Hmm. Otherwise, you would maybe have a, a different scenario where someone would take a newsroom hostage or, or something like that. But I, I just thought a lot of the factors kind of came together very quickly, which obviously was probably a, a narrative requirement sure. to be able to show everything. The second thing was I thought it was really odd that throughout the movie it seemed like the, the news network could just simply cut to the boat hmm. without the terrorist group having any real say over whether they started recording or not. I mean, they'd go, let's go back to the team in the boat. Yeah, and then they'd just be, be arguing, walking yeah. around as if they had the, the freedom to just walk around the boat and be like, 
like they're interviewing people at a accident scene, like, Oh, mm-hmm. you, you know, you and McKeeson, what, what do you think about that? And some of them are just hanging out or they're like stressed and yeah. like, I have the gun here. I'm going to tell you, you know, when you can get up, I, I was surprised they wouldn't be like blindfolded mm-hmm. and just make very specific targeted communications. Well, I, th- I think that's a reflection of the fact that this group isn't really hardened terrorists. You know, they're not trained in how to handle these things. There's even that moment where they think that they're, they won where they were, their latest report was that the triggers were on their way, and Lyman asked the news reporter, hey, what do you think of this? This is great, right? It seemed like maybe they thought that this was like a bonding experience and that they're just all part of this together. I mean, I, I get that, but it also kind of, in my mind, doesn't line up with the fact that they straight up shot like a bunch of Coast Guard people. You yeah. know, it's not like they casually work themselves up and were able to kind of take someone hostage like in some movies where they take someone hostage but you doubt whether they're really up to right. acting violently i mean they they killed a person i mean they are murderers well, at I, that I point. guess that's why you have jim siever there as the the muscle wild card probably they thought because he was a bank robber that he'd be able to do it and he'd be able to be the one cause... to give it more of an edge the group yeah, yeah. he's he's the muscle of the group this yeah. this group is very you have the leader who's just the looking out for the best. He doesn't actually want to cause the bomb to go off. Then you have the, the scientist with the dark past, which is the fact that he's about to uh, die of, of radiation poisoning. Then you have the poet, who's the messaging <laughs> the person. Uh, then you have the everyday person, who I thought the housewife element, we talked a little bit about this before, she represents to me a, a person who's just uh, watches nuclear arms race unfolding and is upset by this. Because she's a, a person, a real person. And there are lots of examples of people who were involved in these anti-nuclear movements. There's a, a slight reference in the movie to uh, a SANE, S-A-N-E, nuclear policy uh, that's verifiable, bilateral, disarmament, all that stuff. Um, a lot of those people that led those movements were housewives who were upset at the, the fact that they were worried about um, – of nuclear weapons use. Yeah, I, I get that, I guess. Um, and this gets into my, my next uh, nitpick or uh, supercritical <laughs> comment. I, I didn't really feel, other than like their little montage, I didn't really feel like the, the, the terrorist group's motivations were properly set. Hmm. Um, I mean, I didn't even understand why they had two different people between Lyman and McKeeson. Like, I, I almost feel like you could have put those characters together and just made it mm. one person who was smart enough to like, like, like what was the real need to have two of them? You could have just had one character who was probably dying who, and I realized like, it seemed like they almost created the two characters simply to have conflict, yeah. like to be able to show them kind of fighting amongst themselves. But I didn't really see the need for them to be there as two discrete narrative like i i got the reason for the gym guy i got the reason for the the dangerous poet to kind of reflect (laughs) 60s 70s radicalism or whatever also i didn't really get the point of diane silverman i i I kind Hmm. of get your point about how this movement kind of sucked up you know casual not casual like everyday Everyday people people. who are concerned and i i totally understand that but they didn't set for me as an audience member how you moved from a an engaged voter who maybe <laughs> marches to then actively being one of five terrorists who kill a Coast Guard person and actually basically commit to yeah. committing suicide with a nuclear bomb and killing tens of thousands of people. Well, I, I think my response to that would be, because I like this movie, uh, would be that that's the nature of the format. It's a news report. They don't have time. They don't really know. 
if it was if this was a movie, it was a drama. Right, that's fair. You know what I mean? Like if it was a drama, and it was the point of it is, is like to have character development completely. Like that's like the major goal, right? Behind all this thing, it would be a failure if you didn't understand the motivations behind this. But that part of the reason is because the news media doesn't really want to know your motivations. They want to know a little bit of the background here and there, but they also ran out of time because because she's just a housewife. She's not someone that's like a former Marine or the person that stole right. the material. She's not a radical from the okay. 60s. You know, like she's just I'll, the person It's like, eh, we'll go past okay, that person. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. I, I probably wouldn't take it on a kind of cynical path of they don't, they don't care their motivations, but I will give you that maybe they wanted to include someone where you don't know. I guess when I was originally watching it where they laid mm-hmm. together all of the motivations of everyone else so perfectly in terms of yeah. – Oh, he was a brilliant person, most likely to succeed. And I thought the Diane Silverman character was just so quickly right. passed over. Maybe that was just a reflection of, well, they don't have all the information. So, okay, okay. I'll, I'll give you that. Next up, uh, the federal versus local response. So I thought there was this funny moment where— That's one of your favorite things to yes, talk about in these movies. Yes. Yeah. How, how was you know SEAL Team 6 not there— did they ever mention the FBI? They did. They had this weird scene near the end of the movie where the FBI was saying there's no way – this is before the bomb went off – where the right. FBI was like, there's no way we would have given up our, our nuclear arsenal. Because oh, right, right. remember, the Soviets are – they're his, there. Yeah, his, his news comment said like, you know, agent, blah, 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 and then under it just says FBI agent, right. <laughs> which but, I thought was hilarious. But I also thought it was really funny that like, the FBI doesn't comment on nuclear deterrence policy – it just said, why would we do right. this when we had a plan? I don't. I didn't really get that part of it. I mean, FBI right. would be more involved in like get understanding the background of the people that were involved in this because it's a domestic investigation. Right. But eh, well, oh, yeah, it's consolidation I, of roles. And I and I do remember they actually had some news clip uh, snippets from outside the J. Edgar Hoover Building, which I, <laughs> I didn't think looked at like the Hoover Building at all. But so, but there was this weird uh, the first I don't know half or third of the movie. I thought, and I think they even quoted some government officials saying, well, we don't believe they're credible with nuclear weapons. We, we consider this a local matter. Yeah. I think that was the actual <laughs> quote. But if you, I, if I remember my, my federal law, like kidnapping is a federal crime. Mm. So I would have thought that like the FBI would have been involved from the get-go. And then you have the additional item of the national news media seemingly being intertwined with the hostage situation and then giving up their their news coverage I, I it seemed to me that the the level of news media participation in the story was pretty significant mm-hmm. and you didn't see as much of the actual federal involvement like you had every now and then some press comments by the press secretary at the white house right. and then the doe guy the department of energy which i thought was funny i don't know i didn't feel i guess this is my nitpick for all of these movies I, I didn't see what i thought was a requisite level of federal oversight I well I, I wonder there, where, the, where were the negotiations like yeah. the news media was negotiating with them you never saw once any kind of phone call of all right mm. well let's say they just simply responded to what were essentially the negotiations with the media yeah that that makes sense uh it seems like maybe they had a little bit of the fact that we don't negotiate with terrorists they talk a little bit about that in terms of the israeli context yeah. we don't negotiate with terrorists we... but you do talk to them yeah. Like you do try to make contact. And That's true. I mean, they had video of the bombs being dismantled. They had video of like inside the yeah. bunker type thing. But you never actually saw the FBI trying to like contact them, which 
it seemed like that would be a major thing that you would expect to cover. Especially if you were trying to set up a diversion. You you get negotiations going. You get people yeah. calm down. I really would wonder about the behind the scenes of this a little bit. Like you're like you're saying, how soon did the government realize? Oh, we have a real situation here. Was it pretty quickly? Because if you got people like Lyman and McKeeson, who are people who are fully capable, if you give them nuclear material to build a bomb, mm-hmm. and there's material missing. I wonder if at that point they realized, oh, this is a real thing, and then they start developing these countermeasures, and it just takes a long time for the president to finally agree to do this plan. But it was just weird, like the early on when they agree to like give up the Coast Guard people, yeah, and uh, the newscasters, they're the ones. Oh, this this is ridiculous. This isn't what yeah. we negotiated. It's like, who are you? You're like Peter Jennings yep. or whoever. You know, they're very nice, smart people, but. They're not going to be the ones that are sure, but I think that's part of the the meta commentary of the entire of the entire story itself. And that gets to my final negative critique, which is totally uh, uh, a fair point. There were times where I went back and forth on what the movie was ultimately trying mm. to like focus on. Where clearly, it's trying to make different comments, but at different points, I thought, "Are you really talking about nukes here, or are you talking about like news media and sensationalism?" Obviously, it's it's like intertwined because you're you're trying to tell one story by using the mechanics mm-hmm. of the media coverage. But I thought the focus actually there there's a way to use the media to consistently talk about nuclear issues. And I think I think they, they we went back and forth like that huge like five ten minute thing where McKeeson is right. saying cut my feed if if the ratings. I feel like that. Why I get that it's a relevant point in our culture but would it really happen yeah like are, are you talk, are you trying to talk about nuclear weapons or trying to talk about the media and i thought the movie kind of went got distracted mm-hmm. or it kind of digressed in its own execution between different points i would say on that. i would agree with you i would say probably 60 percent, 65 percent of the movie was focused on media stuff and the other remaining 35 40 was was nuke stuff yeah. Um, but I think it's interesting, though. I'm willing to let that slide a little bit from my own side because the movie really shows about how people would understand and what ways they would consume this information if this were to actually happen. So the idea of the, uh, the media and whether or not they are enga- enabling mm-hmm. the terrorists because they created this outlet. The fact that we have this technology now that allows for live broadcasts, and pe- and this was something that terrorist organizations would do. They would kidnap people and they would issue demands. Uh, you mentioned during when we were watching this movie, the terrorist uh, hostage situation in, in, in Munich during the Olympics. This was a, a well-laid-out, tr- well-trodden uh, situation. Like this has happened before. So yeah. I would say that. And people then talk in commentary about whether or not this is the role of the the media. Should the media not allow this feed and then just deal with the consequences of it or whether or not they need or, – or the other side, this is news. People want to know this. They're concerned about this stuff. I and think, the, And the extent to which the media becomes part of the story. Yes. The point behind this was that the media and terror organizations have this mutual relationship where they feed off of each other, one for content and another one for outlets. Right. And I would love to see this movie remade today. I don't say that about a lot of movies. Oh, I agree. I think this oh, movie yeah. would be fantastic as, as the same yeah. thing as a TV movie um, or video on demand or something, but in the same format because you have mm-hmm. nowadays in, in the movie, there's like Super 8 film that they develop uh, for, right. that shows 
another angle. You have a little bit of early technology, being able to do live on-site broadcasts. But today, that stuff is way more advanced. And you add in um, cell phone cameras, and you integrate some of that stuff into it. Right. Uh, you have Twitter and Facebook Live and all these different elements of it. I would love to see the chaos and how this stuff is covered today. Now, I don't really want a Wolf Blitzer, Anderson Cooper remake in particular. I think part of the things I love about this movie is is that a lot of these people who were like, oh, yeah, that's that's that person. I guess the main anchor person was famous from St. Elsewhere, but people get people like Michael Madsen and Lane Smith who were really early-ish on in their careers. Oh, they, so they, they, they were wasn't like Tom Cruise playing yeah. a newscaster. Because if, right. if you hire, if you basically hire the most famous actor or... If it's you actually, hard to buy into the realism. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's right. what works for this movie so well. I would love to see this movie remade and possibly as the plot of Anchorman 3. <laughs> well, I will say... If, I, I totally agree. It would be really, I don't want to say cool, but I, I think it could be incredibly relevant or it would be relevant. I mean, you, you could watch the original and it would still stand on its own, I think, in a lot of ways. But I think it, on the other side of that coin, if you made it too real, where you tried to get like Wolf Blitzer and Anderson Cooper yep. to be those people, I think that would also fail ultimately because then it would be, I, I think there'd be too much emphasis on, oh, that's, that's Wolf Blitzer. I, I think you would see the seams yes. of fiction and reality a little too more clearly. Having just kind of new people that aren't a Tom Cruise or a Wolf Blitzer, someone <laughs> in, in between. like Same person. So, someone who could be a newscaster, but someone who's not familiar enough. Yeah. It would allow the reality of it and the fiction of it to kind of blur together a little bit more. I agree with you. And I also think that it wouldn't work with Wolf Blitzer and Anderson Cooper because the movie is an indictment of that type of media consumption yes, yeah, and production right. i don't want to put anderson cooper on blast um those kind of that type of media coverage is exactly what this yeah. is going after so right. having a real person play themselves in a movie like that it wouldn't work it also doesn't work and this is a side commentary for me i hate when you have real reporters in movies pretending marvel to be, films well marvel's don't. not as bad as dc dc has been doing oh, a lot okay. more and and Batman vs Superman, there's like Soledad O'Brien, Anderson Cooper, Wolf Blitzer. Right. It just, it's not real. There are real people. There is broadcasters. There's Jack Ryder in Gotham, who's like a reporter for mm -hmm. all this stuff. You've got Vicki Vale from ba the, the original Batman. You have yeah. these real characters who are really doing these things. Don't pretend like this is a a real movie. It's a comic book. Don't. Eh. Anyways, that's yeah. a, another side thing. One other thing I want to add to this movie is that that this is even. As a, a old person, a little bit older, when they first saw this, this movie is scary to me. This movie, this movie works very well for me. The scenes that build tension with no music and and the idea that oh, there's mistakes being made by the the anchors. They're trying to get information. They don't have all of everything. There's stuttering and all this. It just seems so real. And then once the actual bomb goes off, and you have the the anchor people like stunned about what to say, and you have Meg crying, asking questions like, "Is the radiation coming? Everything's on fire." That's it. Just works well for me. And the scenes of the people in, coming out of ambulances, going to the hospital, whatever they did there, it, it, it kind of makes me tear up a little bit about how scary that stuff is. Because you see similar coverage today in places like Syria when there's a bombing. You have that imagery of that child, that young child whose family was, just, was killed in a bombing, and he's sitting in the, in the ambulance. 
and he's just stunned. That's the kind of stuff that they put in this movie in 1983. And it's just a TV movie. The, the effects aren't great. The The bomb effect is not very good. Um, it's it's a couple steps up from it, iMovie. It's, it's almost more impactful because you're not just focused on like a, a Marvel movie where yes. you see a bunch of stuff blowing up. You, you let your own understanding of what a bomb explosion would probably look and feel like. Yes. You know, you see the imagery of after the fact and then you go, wait, what would, what would that have looked like? And then your your mind is a little more and that by seeing just partial elements of it from different points of view, like a building on fire or a person with cuts on their head, something like that. It forces you to fill in the details from your own understanding of nuclear mm. weapons and stuff like that. And in a way it almost becomes more real because your, your own understanding of the true story inserts itself into the fiction Yes. as opposed to you just, Oh, there's the CGI explosions and I know that's CGI. So it's not as real. But when you just see the aftermath of an explosion and then you in your own mind have to think of what you understand an explosion to actually be, it it feels a little more real. Right. It, it doesn't rely necessarily on the visualness of the bomb itself, but the reactions and the people right. that are there. And I also – the one thing I like about the movie too is it would be how we would consume, consume this information. If a nuclear bomb were to go off where we live, which is in the Washington, D.C. area, we wouldn't be worried about what the local news was covering. We would be – having a lot bigger problem or no problems to be honest but if you were if this were to happen in a say Atlanta we this is how we would consume this information we'd be looking on Twitter we'd be watching the news when over both cable cutters but we would be trying to go online to see if we can get the the CNN stream of of all of this and we would try to be following this and we would be getting it through the media and or largely largely through the media and which is imperfect uh, and that's what kind of scares me is like this is how this would be consumed. So to me, it really worked putting me um, not in the scenes, but as a viewer trying to make sense yeah. of these kind of situations. What you were talking about there kind of touched on what I thought just to put them in bullet point form were like the two big things where I thought the movie did a lot of good things right was one. I thought they did a good job of looking at the real like human impact of these types of crises. I mean, nuclear weapons specifically, but just more broadly. I thought it was really unnerving in a way when it seemed like they had actual footage of real survivors of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. I don't know because they obviously don't yeah. tell you. But again, it's where the reality and the fiction kind of blend together where you don't really know where I thought, oh, wow, these could be actual real interviews. And like that, that was really what happened. Yeah. And then second was how the the movie portrayed the emotion of kind of the chaotic nature at different points, whether it was the bomb being disarmed or the original shootout of bits and pieces of kind of real-time information where you, you you don't know what to make of what you're seeing, but you're seeing something. And so just trying to process that, like the whole chaotic nature of people talking over each other. You know, you can bring in 9-11 or the other kind of real-world events where you, you don't know what to do, but you just know that you got to keep watching because you're trying to, like, make sense of it, whatever it, sure. it is that's going on. So let's let's rate the movie. Normally we rate it one out of five, uh, but we like to tailor the rating system so that we get the precise measurement of our feelings about this movie. And this has been pretty serious talk, so maybe we'll, we'll lighten the lighten the mood a little. Sure. Bit. Let's do one out of five tugboats because the Liberty sense. May was a tugboat, and I think that this is actually a pretty good measurement system because uh, one tugboat, eh. And we'll get you what you can tug, like a dinghy, a little little PT boat. It's not much. Not much. Five tugboats, you could probably tug the USS Yorktown, wherever you want it to go. Yep. Uh, take it home with you. Joel, 
How many tugboats would you give this movie? I was going back and forth. I mean, for there are some drawbacks as far as how they maybe rushed some character development and stuff like that. But I will say, for something that came out in the 80s, I haven't seen anything. I mean, there's some found footage movies and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But to know that like they did that like 30 years ago, 35 years ago almost, I, I will put that maybe at four or four and a half tugboats. Ooh. Purely for one, seemed like they were pretty good on the uh, the science and everything, but really on how they were maybe too ahead of the curve on the media and how they deal with a crisis. A lot of that, if I were like a, you know, I took a media, a couple media classes in college and stuff like that, mm-hmm. I think that would be a really, I, I'll put this in quotes, fun movie to discuss <laughs> in an academic setting because there's a lot to unpack there and how you can look at that movie in that particular era of technology, but you can easily port it over to current technology, current news environments and current crises. Maybe it's not a nuclear eco-terrorist, mm-hmm. but you know, ISIS, whoever you want, you could fill it in. I, I agree with you. I, I think it's ripe for a remake, frankly. Right. I, I'm surprised someone hasn't tried to do it already. Maybe they have, and we just haven't seen it yet. But. So just to be for the, for the record books, uh, are you saying four or 4.5? I'm feeling generous. I'll give it. I'll give it four and a half, just because how how uh, down the road I think it was thinking about the media. And, well, and now crisis. I'm trying to remember. We've done so many episodes. We've been we're you know we're the, the I long... think this is the highest rating, yeah. other than maybe the uh, Terminator franchise. Yeah, that's true. You might have popped Cameron. that one up a little higher. Yeah, uh, I'll do I'm, four and a half. I'm also going to do four and a half. Uh, this Ooh. is. I think four and a half is great. The only reason why this doesn't get to five, and I think the first time I did five was our mini nuke episode on the movie Jaws, which I think is a perfect movie, is because of the idea that it is a little confusing about where they are trying to put their narrative weight behind being a media discussion movie or being something about about nuclear weapons. I think they do enough of it. I there's a few times where I wish it was a little bit tighter. Probably during that scene. That which is still good, the yeah. weird media critique scene. But if they did that just a little bit better, I think this movie would be perfect. Because one of the things that I, that gets me with this movie is the last couple of seconds, like the one you mentioned. Yeah, the fact that it's three last days later, five minutes. Yeah, and they yeah. moved. They've moved on. They've talked about it. Like it's already happened. It's not a big problem. Um, there, but they have the next thing to cover. And again, that's probably how right. it would. It would. It might be how it plays out. I think the things that they are ignoring a little bit would be like the economic implications of a nuclear bomb that went off in the city. Right. It happens once, uh, especially during a recession. It would have a pretty big impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, studies have been uh, done on even a dirty bomb, a way – not a, a low-yield nuclear bomb. No, like like a dirty bomb that just disperses radioactive material. You put that off in, in lower Manhattan, the entire country is 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 locked down it's the right. financial implications um all kinds of different stuff but this you know Char- Char- charleston major city uh, is a major historic city yeah. well i and i wonder major port i wonder if, if that's yeah. maybe why they also picked charleston because i mean obviously if you detonated in dc like whole yeah. areas of our government are no longer functional charleston you still have your elected officials not to downplay oh that's easily you know you can sure. kill off charleston Obviously, that's not what I'm saying, but there's a certain level of government and economy, you know, like structure of society that would still be able to be functioning such that you could add this biting critique at the end where the media kind of moves on to the next story as opposed to, oh, the president's dead. The entire Department of Defense is gone. There is a certain level of plausibility there, I think. If you like this kind of movie, whether it's the structure or the content, uh, I've got a few things to recommend. 
that our listeners uh, follow through with and check out. And then maybe Joel's got some stuff uh, on his end as well to recommend. First, I recommend a movie from 1984, so the following year, called Countdown to Looking Glass. It's similar to this one. It's a structure done with... We joke fake news, but it's the actual tries to look like a real news story, but it has elements of actual drama narrative uh, into it because they didn't want to go the full all fake news broadcast thing because they were worried about getting similar criticisms that this and War of the Worlds production radio broadcast had. Um, But it's about a crisis that takes place in the Middle East that escalates to a nuclear exchange between the United States and the Soviet Union in the Middle East. Uh, It's named after the Cold War era airborne command post that was used to coordinate a nuclear war uh, once it got started in the event of the ground stations being destroyed. And it's called the Looking Glass, which is a mirror, because it mirrors the operations of the ground command of U.S. uh, Strategic Command in Omaha. There's another movie that's very similar that came out in 1994 called Without Warning. It's about meteors hitting the Earth, and it's local broadcasts covering that. But I'm not going to recommend that because it's terrible. I recommend checking out a a book called How to Photograph an Atomic Bomb by Peter Kurian, who was an animator on the original Star Wars movie, but he later produced uh, the movie Trinity and Beyond, which is a great documentary about nuclear nuclear testing and the history of, of nuclear weapons. But this is a great book about the efforts that had to go into the people who take those very famous nuclear bomb test footage and it's not as easy as pointing a camera at it and seeing what happens most cameras won't handle the the brilliant light that comes off from a nuclear bomb the type of radiation that gets the material gets destroyed so they had to develop new cameras and new techniques to be able to uh to actually be able to film uh nuclear testing and all of that kind of stuff uh usually the photography would be about four miles away but they would get a little bit closer when they put the camera inside some lead or steel um containers and things like that so they can get that on kindle and you can check that out joel you got anything for us? Yeah, I was just going to add one thing. Uh, it's not on the fictional front, but if you're a fan of just movies in general, you, you probably like a good documentary every now and then. Uh, I think we, we mentioned it, I mean, the Munich attack generally. Uh, I thought the documentary One Day in September would be an interesting mm. addition. It's it's just related to the Munich attacks and the hostage situation. It's narrated by Michael Douglas. It won an Academy Award for Best Feature-Length Documentary. This was in 1999. And it's largely made up of all the media coverage because there was so much media there because it was the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So there's actually very little narration that's needed because they have so much like newsroom, like the guys saying, oh, here's our update from what happened at the the Olympic Village. And it it reminded me, this movie, of all of that. And I, I remember I, I saw that documentary. I, I got the DVD, you know, shortly after it came out. And it, it's, I think it's valuable because it was pre nine eleven. And I think things after nine eleven, in a lot of ways, it kind of represents or interprets the depiction of terrorism through like post nine eleven. And this was interesting because it's talking about terrorism before nine eleven, mm. and you know, it's just a, it's kind of a, a different way to think about it. You know, you're not always referencing 9-11 yeah. in a way. So I, I, I don't know. It was just from the depiction of like real world events and through the media and then also kind of a different era of talking about terrorism. Uh, I, I think it'd be an interesting addition if you're if you're interested in this movie. Uh, this documentary would certainly be a, a, a worthy addition. Very cool. Thanks, Joel.
All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong or got right, probably more things we got wrong than right, <laughs> uh, there are a couple of ways you can contact us. You don't just have to go down to the newsroom and or send us a, a physical letter. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. You can send us some comments via Twitter at nuclearpodcast. And you can email us at supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the program today, uh, we'd appreciate it if you'd consider subscribing. You can do that on iTunes. And if you want, uh, it'd be great if you could leave us a review. Tell us what you liked, what you didn't, what we can do better. Until next time, this has been Joel. And Tim. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. And more at News at 11. <laughs>